Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 258 being recorded on Monday, March 29th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, hope you're having a good week and you have no blockages like the Suez Canal. I know, this was a bad week to plan a vacation in the canal. <laughs> Do you... Do you often vacation in the canal? Uh, I hadn't yet, but you know, I was I was thinking about it. Uh, there was a super funny tweet I saw on Twitter though that someone some someone wrote. Uh, Everyone's anti Godzilla until there's a twenty two hundred thousand ton boat that can't be moved. Yeah, and then I saw. I think they got it kind of dislodged today, and then the wind blew it back into its original position. I I can't tell what's the truth anymore. Like uh, parody has become so close to reality, but. I saw that as if it was news, so I, I think I think it's still jammed. Is that your understanding, or do you think it's? I correct? don't have an understanding, but that would make sense because I would say that recent news reports were conflicting about whether it was still <laughs> blocked or not. So that maybe that's that's the story. Maybe it got unblocked and then reblocked. Um, yeah, we, it is. I have know. clients that are pretty bummed though because it's a it's a pretty big deal. Our, as you know, our supply chain is super just in time. And so <laughs> when a major thoroughfare like that gets blocked, like it has an impact on product availability over here. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And the, the pictures that show the boats waiting, it's just amazing how many, how many cargo carrying boats are just jammed up because of this one single point of failure. Yeah. We're spoffed. Yeah. And the plan B is, is not ideal. <laughs> it's a, it's a long way around. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to, and then you, you can see a lot of the boats are doing that now because they kind of have to. Yeah, I know uh, you're a better investor than me, but I've actually been uh, buying into a lot of pirate stocks because I think this actually puts a lot of that cargo like in pirate territory. Yeah, I didn't know you could buy a pirate ETF. That's a uh, that's a uh, smart. I'm lying, but I wish I was that cool. <laughs> cool. Well, tonight's episode we wanted to keep it kind of light and fluffy, um, and just catch everyone up on some news because it's been a while since we have done a news episode. And of course, it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without some Amazon. So here's some... Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Jason, I'm usually our Amazon fanboy here, um, but this one I really wanted to kick over to you for your perspective. You've been tracking... Uh, the entrance of Walmart into the healthcare space, and Amazon has announced uh, recently that they are going to expand the what they call "quote unquote" Amazon Care, um, you know, to not only all their employees but uh, employees of other companies. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's it uh, it's a pretty big expansion. So, um, for the very few people that haven't listened to every single episode, the 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 Reader's Digest version of Amazon's health, um, they've, they've leaned heavily into pharmacy. They bought PillPack. They rolled out a national pharmacy, Amazon Pharmacy. Um, they partnered with uh, Goldman Sachs and Berkshire Hathaway on this health initiative called Haven to kind of reinvent healthcare. 
and then they pulled out of Haven this year or late last year. Uh, and the rumor was that it was because Haven was too slow and they felt they could go faster on their own. And what they were going faster on is this thing that they call Amazon Care. So they piloted this in the Pacific Northwest with all their Seattle-based employees. And it's it's a, a telemedicine-based healthcare system where all Amazon employees can get a doctor on a video conference in under 60 seconds and kind of avoid a lot of in-office visits. Um, and so the big news is they've announced that they're expanding Amazon Care to all 1.3 million of their employees. So that's a very substantial expansion of the pilot. And they're also offering the pilot to other companies. I'm not sure they've announced that they have any takers on that yet, but but it seems like their their efforts in healthcare are rapidly expanding. And, you know, they, they did invest in telemedicine and even buy some some companies in that space kind of before COVID. And then, you know, COVID has really, you know, um, accelerated the adoption of telemedicine. So so it seems like, annoyingly, that's another uh, good investment that seems like it's starting to pay off. Yeah. And uh, just so I, it kind of reminds me, as you were describing it, um, it reminds me of that May Day feature that, that Kindles used to come with. I don't know if they still do or not, where you could like just press a button and someone would be like, hi, Jason, are you having a problem opening a book? Is that is that kind of how it works? I, that's my understanding. Uh, I, a, I don't think they still offer Mayday. Um, I know, kind of sad. That For a while, that was the differentiating feature on that platform, but I think it went away. Um, but yeah, I, th- uh, I haven't had a chance to kind of get a firsthand tour of how the, the Amazon health system works. But, um, you know, pre-pandemic, there was a lot of challenges around uh uh HIPAA laws and stuff and so people were really going slow and cautiously on telemedicine and there was generally a lot of friction um and you know no nobody wanted to like store any of the information in their platform and all these things and uh um I would say a lot of healthcare providers like suddenly discovered uh, out of necessity that there are plenty of HIPAA compliant ways to do telemedicine um and Amazon has both that that sort of visual video interface and and the you know it sits on on a HIPAA compliant version of AWS which they they have a lot of HIPAA compliant services on AWS now um but they also bought like a um an artificial intelligence symptom diagnostic tool so kind of like a mm-hmm. machine learning system for you know um converting your webmd queries into a diagnosis so um, I think that's part of this system and yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll be, I'd love to hear from some Amazon employees that have tested it. Yeah. And COVID was probably helpful here because there was all these, you know, rules around, you had to be licensed in this state to do telemedicine in this state and they waived those. So it makes it a lot easier to do telemedicine when you don't have to have you know, a doctor in the same state as where you are, which never made sense to me anyway. I don't think medicine's that difference between that. Hopefully it's not that different between North Carolina and Chicago. Yeah, and there, I mean, we just have so much, ch- so many challenges and friction in the healthcare system that we should like, we we shouldn't be like fragmenting supply and demand with all these arbitrary virtual borders. I guess. Yeah. Easy for me to say. Two e-commerce guys talking about healthcare. What could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> Add to cart. That's not my answer. Exactly. Exactly. Just buy more Advil. Uh, <laughs> any other Amazon news you saw this week, Scott? 
Yeah. So uh, Wells Fargo, one of their analysts that was out, um, and this was like a combo between their internet and their retail folks. Um, and they have officially proclaimed Amazon to be the largest seller of apparel. And this one is fun because I think we actually covered this. We've been at this podcasting gig for quite a while. I think we've been at commerce um, cumulatively between the two of us for, uh, gosh, 50, 60 years at this point. But uh, we were even podcasting in 2016. And I remember when Terry Lundgren, then the CEO of Macy's, said, uh, and I'm going to quote here, the Amazon threat is overstated. Macy's nearly 800 stores offer a huge advantage over Amazon. Given how shoppers tend to buy the same item in multiple sizes when they order online, Macy's can use its stores to handle returns, which lowers the shipping cost and offers a chance to win some sales while those customers are in their, our stores. So he he kind of was uh, you know pounding his chest and bring on Amazon. This is there's no way they're going to catch up with the mighty Macy's. Um, and you and I have been at this long enough to know that the the. Biggest career limiter is to say that you are safe from Amazon. Uh, that did not end up being true for Mr. Lundgren. Um, he left Macy's a while ago, and they've had a series of other folks roll through there. Uh, I don't think they have 800 stores anymore. You, uh, what are they down to, like 600, 400? I don't, I'll have to, I'll have, to have one of our uh, research team look at, into that. Um, so, so, yeah, so I thought that was really interesting that, you know, the a lot of people – uh, think they are not threatened by Amazon and they are. And I've seen the drugstores kind of take a similar stance to Amazon coming into healthcare. And I think it would be wise to be careful there uh, because you know, Amazon is really good at taking care of your customers if you don't. And that's what they did to Macy's. For sure. Uh, in fairness to Terry Lunger, and I would say two things. He said that uh, he sound, he probably sounded way more distinguished when he said it than you did. Uh, that was my distinguished. I know that was your distinguished. He has way voice, better hair than you and I together times 100. He yeah, has good that, hair. That is for he's sure. He's got CEO hair. He definitely has CEO hair. Um, and then uh, I feel like one of the fun things about doing this podcast for five years is in the e-commerce space, if you can do it for five years, you are going to get a lot of I told you so's. Yeah, exactly. And so we we definitely get one. Uh, so I want to say um, that there are currently like 430 uh, mainline Macy stores. So yeah, that feels a lot smaller than 800. It, uh, it probably feels that way because it is that way. And, uh, <laughs> for, for sure, Amazon caught and dramatically surpassed them in apparel. I want to say from that Wells data, Macy's was at like 16 billion in apparel sales. And, uh, Amazon was estimated to be at 41 billion. So almost three X, but uh, uh, per Wells Fargo, TJ Maxx and Walmart also passed Macy's. So there, there was a point when most people felt like Macy's was the largest apparel retailer in the in the U.S. And now, um, per this analysis, they're fourth. Yeah, I think uh, I think Amazon is three to four times the size of Macy's now. Wow, ouch! Um, wasn't there? Isn't this also a double win? Because didn't Scott Galloway kind of famously? Th- think that Macy's Wood is going to crush Amazon? Wasn't he kind of on that? That 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 should have been, we should have known it was over the second he said that because he's, he's got a, a really bad trucker record. Exactly. I feel like everyone likes to make fun of his um, anti-Tesla picks, but to me, by far, his, his my my favorite thing was uh, his, his prediction that uh, the future of commerce isn't Amazon, it's Macy's and Omnichannel. And uh, like there's, 
if you if you look at the Macy stock from the day he said that to today, it's it's basically a straight line, and you can imagine what direction it's going in. Yeah. Wow. Ouch. Uh, all right. Any other news you want to cover, Jason? Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, there, there was an article that made me think of you, uh, cause we, we talk about this at least once a year, New York times ran a, a big piece about, um, Google aims to be the anti Amazon of e-commerce. It has a long way to go. That was the subtitle of the article. I kind of felt like so. you wrote the subtitle. <laughs> that is a, uh, that is a, a journalist that has done some research. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I don't think there would be anything new in the premise of this article to our listeners. I mean, they, they just was, you know, they talked about Bill Reddy coming in to take over commerce for uh, for Google and opening up um, the Google shopping ads and making them free and, and uh, you know, essentially becoming a, a marketplace, uh, offering this integration with Shopify to make it easy for Shopify sellers to to list their products on, on Google and Google is, uh, by, for all intents and purposes becomes a marketplace. What was surprising to me, and maybe it shouldn't have been, um, was in the article, they profile, uh, this, this small business owner that I think, uh, um, sells roller skates. And they talked about how she happened to be sitting on a lot of roller skates at the beginning of the pandemic, which became a, a desirable item during the pandemic. Um, and she started experimenting with, with Google's kind of artificial intelligence ad format. This it's called the smart shopping ad. And so essentially you don't have to pick your target or anything. You just kind of give Google a budget and Google figures out the best place to put your ads. Um, so she put $1,800 into these Google smart shopping ads. Um, and that generated 3.6 million impressions and led to a quarter of a million dollars in sales for her. So um, I'm not uh, in the ad biz like you are. Is that a good uh, ROI? Yeah, yeah. Except in the ad biz, we call it ROAS. Oh, is that a good ROAS? That is a good ROAS. Um, the 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 smart question to follow up to that would be how much of that was incremental? How many of those roller skates was she going to sell without Google? Um, but we'll we'll put that cynical question aside for a minute. Uh, what was interesting to me in the article was. Uh, after having that initial success, Google flagged her account because they, uh, via some crawling bot that they had, decided that she was listing her roller skates in the Google ads at a higher price than she was selling them direct in Shopify, um, which is apparently against the terms and conditions of these Google uh, of these free Google shopping ads. Um Many marketplaces have that that clause. Amazon famously has that clause. Uh, I wasn't aware. It's not, I'm not surprised, but I wasn't aware that Google had that clause or that they were trying to enforce it. So they essentially put her in the penalty box and don't allow her to list her Shopify products in Google. Um, and this is not going to come as a great surprise to you. Neither Shopify nor Google have uh, remotely uh, effective customer service to remediate this problem, right? So she's calling Shopify and they're saying, hey, talk to Google. It's not our fault. And, you know, there's no one to talk to at Google to get out of this penalty box and kind of have a fair dispute resolution. So this woman had some initial success on the Google platform and then got locked out. Yeah, that's a little scary because... um you know, Google puts all these things, they used to have separate little centers for all these different products. And now they've consolidated it all into one 
you know, kind of part of their ad center or whatever they call it now. And I imagine you can't just get locked out of one part of it. I bet she's locked out of, I bet she came by keywords or anything now. So that's, you know, that that's pretty terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean. Uh, I mean, it's a big reminder, like all these platforms have traffic that can be valuable for you. And there's a lot of like favorable ROI to some of the customer acquisition things, but but you should remember, like, you don't own any of these platforms. Like, no no one should be building a business exclusively based on the customers they can rent from Google or Facebook or Amazon. Um, because, you know, there there are going to be winners and losers, and the ground is going to shift under you, like, in favor of those platforms. One of my favorite – I've been to Google, like, 50 times, and you're always sitting in the lobby of, like, a building whose name is something wacky like Pi or Moles Constant or something. <laughs> or see the speed of light and you, you wait there for the person to come and, and get you. And so I've, I've probably collectively spent 40 hours in the lobbies of different Google things, just waiting on people. And invariably the phone is like ringing off the hook at these lobbies. And it's someone like this poor lady trying to get a human and they somehow rattle into the building, you know, the, the building lobby and the people there are actually temps. And, you know, you hear them, this side of the conversation where like, Ma'am, I don't I don't know how to get your listing into Google. No, ma'am, I don't I don't know how to solve that. Uh have you tried our website? <laughs> it's just like crazy sitting there listening to the, the conversations that go on. Yeah, although I'm thinking you're people. you're doing it wrong because you're not supposed to be listening to the receptionist. You're supposed to be eating all the delicious free snacks in all those lobbies. Well, they don't put a lot of snacks in the lobbies. Oh, you you're get, going to you some different to. buildings than me. I only go to the snack-friendly buildings. (laughs) You have to get into the back room where all the good stuff is, the snack snack stations. Um, Based on our uh, episode last week where we dug deep into the IDFA, um, and by the way, I got a lot of good feedback on that. Apparently, you're pretty good at explaining this stuff, so so kudos to you. Um, I saw an article that Facebook shops announced they have over a million active um, sellers and 250 million people interacting on the Facebook shops. So, you know, our, my a theory I've seen a lot that I kind of buy into, but I want to see it play out is Shopify could be in a crunch. And I thought it was really interesting that Facebook was kind of pounding their chest about how many people are using their shops. Now today, I know they're they're not super useful. It's just kind of a presence, um, but I do think because. Facebook is going to want more first party data because the third party stuff's going to get cut off, be it on the app side or the cookie side slash website. Uh, I think they're going to pull in the checkout and the discoverability, and it's going to be an interesting day when that happens. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think they're going to lean into that checkout, but I wouldn't be surprised. We may never know. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if the cumulative GMV from all that Facebook stuff is already bigger than people imagine, right? Because um, I, I don't think there's a lot of high volume sellers that are hitting really big numbers yet, but there is a very active long tail. Um, and I, I just think that's like, unless Facebook chooses to disclose the GMV, like it's, it's harder to count, like, you know, uh, of those million active sellers, if they're, you know, like each selling a hundred dollars, that's a hundred million dollars in GMV. Um, yeah. the, you know, I don't, yeah, then I don't you think have, there's any billion-dollar uh, sellers on that platform, so we don't hear about it as much. But I think, like Shopify, the bulk of it is this, like, small-volume, high-churn, long-tail seller. Yeah, and then so you've got these little shops. You've got Facebook groups that have kind of, you know, 
we've got these groups that are very active and some of them are around neighborhoods and categories. And so there's a lot of activity there. Um, and then, oh, this is interesting. Have you seen this one startup that's called Comment Checkout or something like that? Which is kind of amazing to me that it still exists. But, you know, people, people, there's a lot of comment commerce that goes on where, where people will post a picture of something on either like Instagram or something. And I know these guys have their own checkouts, but there's still this weird thing where these people will run these little boutiques and then you can say something like you'll say, buy two, and then you'll do some other little code. And then this bot will come in and send you a DM to check out um, the, I saw this startup in that space raised like considerable amount of money and it has a lot of GMV, which I thought was really interesting because it's like, feels like 1985 that some checkout bot is messaging you to enter your information. But, um, you know, there's still a lot of commerce that happens that way. And then the Facebook marketplace has a ton of commerce. And if, if I'm Facebook, you know, they're thinking about how do you roll all that up into one kind of a, it doesn't have to be a seamless experience, but one mega commerce area that, it kind of reminds me of Alibaba where you have this family of pockets of commerce going on. And then you could provide some interesting gateways into that. Like if you search for star Wars, you can see shops groups and then the marketplace. And, you know, is there an interesting way to coalesce those listings across those three properties and have an interesting experience? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of that uh, going on. It's funny. In my, uh, I'm as old as dirt in this space. I remember like one of the first commerce activities on Twitter was like Pizza Hut launched a pizza bot and you could basically send a tweet to the pizza bot to order a pizza. And that was like the future of commerce briefly. And I want to say a year after that, like Starbucks did a like tweet a coffee, which was my favorite feature. And, you know, uh, I'd like a moment of silence for the loss of that feature. Oh. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other news, though. So I do want to uh, move on. Uh, I saw one that I thought was uh, kind of funny because I know we we talk a lot about omnichannel attribution. Um, so for those that don't know, uh, retail leases in malls are really complicated. It It's not as simple as, you know, you pay X dollars uh, a square foot. Um, a lot of those those leases have all sorts of um, rev share clauses. So, you know, depending on how much revenue they generate in the store, um, they they owe some vig to the landlord. There are all kinds of services that the stores have to buy from the landlords, all these all these sort of uh, different clauses. But uh, with all these distressed retailers, there's a ton of renegotiation of leases right now. The retailers have a lot of leverage because the mall owners don't want them to move out. And one of the ways that mall owners are trying to preserve some upside is they're doing drastic rent reductions, but they're asking for a bigger rev share. And what has emerged as the biggest point of contention is that the landlords want their rev share on all of the retailer's revenue, whether it's in that store or online. Mm. Yeah, like curbside. You yeah, know, the mall's so going to want a piece of that. Exactly. And so the malls are arguing that like, hey, that store creates a bunch of visibility, which is driving those online sales. And so the landlord should be credited with those sales. And so it's like, if you look at it superficially, it's it's pretty funny that the the old model is like asking for a commission on the model that's kind of replacing it. 
Yeah, it makes logical sense. The uh, I don't blame the them store asking, operators though. themselves want credit for that stuff too. Yeah, but it just it just so you know, no two retailers count that the same, and so now you know it's coming up as a problem in in all of these kinds of leases because you know the you're you're asking for some clause in a lease that isn't how that that brand does its accounting. Aren't the malls going to own all the stores anyway? So I guess it's a mute point. Only the bad ones. Because they the get, get distressed the and the malls have to, have to <laughs> buy them, yeah. Um, so jumping over the pond, this is super interesting to me. Um, and I, I don't know how close you've been following Pinduoduo, but Pinduoduo is an e-commerce site in China, um, and it, they're heavily focused on gamification. Um, so I kind of think of them as the wish of China, which is ironic because wish is wish the, is the wish of China. Exactly. Um but so Pinduoduo is like, uh, hey, get a bunch of your friends to go in on this deal with you, and it makes the deal lower. If you get enough people to buy it with you, you get these special deals. It's it's kind of gamification of deals, and it's it's mostly like inexpensive uh, stuff. Um, but they uh, they are a public company in China, and they um, in their their um, uh, earnings. They announced that they had 788.4 million users at the end of 2020. And the reason that that is interesting is because Alibaba has 779 million, which means Pinduoduo has more users in China than Alibaba has in China. Wow. Everything in China is always like so big too, which is fun. Yeah. So, uh, Along those lines, China has 983 million internet users this year. And so they're likely going to pass a billion internet users next year. So all these numbers are huge. I would note the AOV on Alibaba is way higher than the AOV on Pinduoduo. So their GMV is going to be way higher. But it's interesting that that these kind of, um, you know, inexpensive gamification sites are are getting so much traction. It'll um, obviously wish has by all all um, apparent measures done pretty well here. So apparently there's demand for that stuff. Um, coming back to the U.S., uh, I ha- uh, get asked a ton right now about video commerce, and maybe we'll do a, a, a kind of an updated uh, social commerce or video commerce uh, show in the future. But uh, a feature I thought was pretty interesting is Google kind of did their – their new feature launch uh, this month. And one of the features they have is they are using computer vision to recognize products in YouTube videos. And so they are now doing automated product ads besides these videos. So it's kind of interesting that they're taking all this video that already exists and didn't have any metadata about products for sale. And they're literally recognizing the products in the video and trying to sell them. Neat. Has uh, have you seen that work, or is it? I haven't, and I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm curious how effective it is right now. Um, the the computer vision stuff is is pretty darn good, but there are so many like super similar variants of products that I would imagine it's still pretty imperfect. Uh, but I'd love to be wrong. Feels like it would go through a tagging phase where it would say, "Hey, I think I see these things," and you would pick it like a human would be in the middle somehow, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be fun to watch. Um, 
I did also see uh, a super interesting article from Channel Advisor, and I was hoping you could explain it to me. Yeah, yeah. So the the topic there. So so first of all, Channel Advisor um, is a company I founded two thousand one. Um, still on the board. Uh, so this is all public information, and they have a ton of data. And one of the things I miss most about not being in the day to day operations is having my hands on that data because it was like seeing the future. Um, but they were kind enough, uh, CEO Dave Spitz and head of marketing, Mike Schapaker put together a really nice uh, blog post. And the topic was really, um, kind of the two different stimulus bumps or stimuli bumps. I don't know. Bumps from stimuluses, bumps from stimuli. I don't know the right, uh, conjugation of that. Yeah. Stimulated uh, bumps. Stimulated bumps. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, we just had to put the explicit on there. All right. And uh, the, so if, if you recall, and Jason, you're more political than I am, there was like $2,000 sometime in 2022, April, May. And then we just recently had another, a little $600 and then a $1,400. Um, so this tracks what a lot of people call STEMI 2.0, which is the $1,400 from the Biden administration that came out in this March. And it's really interesting to see, um, you know, what's happening there. And, you know, I think the the way I would kind of summarize the broad strokes here is the first stimulus was really towards like that critical stuff, you know, like food and toilet paper. And then this set of stimulus um, was was a different set of items. So one of the the biggest differences was clothing, shoes and apparel um, did really well uh, in 2021. Versus 2020 didn't see much bump at all. Jewelry and watches. So um, people are buying a lot of, uh, you know, more, uh, I guess, not essential items with their stimulus dollars. Um, Auto parts. uh, People are keeping their cars longer. There's a shortage of new cars due to a chip shortage. Um, And it's kind of funny. People are calling it chip again, (laughs) which I thought was was kind of hilarious, given that we did ship again. Yeah. Um, I wonder how many of those chips are on boats in the Suez Canal right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's only going to get worse. It's the ship a chip again. Yeah. And uh, it was funny because uh, Spitz was, uh, he and I were chatting about the data and he's like, well, the good news is, you know, we don't have a toilet paper shortage. And then the next day I saw the Suez Canal was clogged and I was like, I wonder how much toilet paper is on this. And then sure enough, the article started to talk about we're going to have another TP shortage if that doesn't come through. So those are categories that over-indexed. Uh, they did better in the more recent stimulus checks than the previous um, the opposite side of that would be um, the um, the categories health and beauty. So that had a really big bump and not so much now. Um, and then computers. So I think everyone's kind of uh, saturated with those items, I guess, uh, and the new stimulus dollars didn't really um, win. And then the third quadrant would be they got kind of a stimulus bump in both time categories. And that would be home and garden, business, industrial, and pet supplies. Um, people just spend a lot of money on that. Um, I've also seen, you know, Wall Street seems to be doing really well and the cryptocurrencies and NFTs. So it seems like people are, uh, a lot of those dollars are spilling into really interesting categories in the economy that, um, you know, I don't think we would call essential like that first round of stimulus. Yeah. I mean, my biggest takeaway, which I have very consistently seen from all of these stimulus things is that that money gets spent as soon as it hits bank accounts. Um, yeah. And 
the I mean, that was like clearly evident in the channel advisor data. I, you know, I have tons of clients where you can literally see how fast the mails delivered, like in the in the metrics um, as as you watch the the spike like wave across the country. Um, and I I point that out because there were a number of analysts that were like, oh, you know what? Savings rates are so high right now and Americans are so flush that uh this, they're not going to spend this money, that they're going to invest this money. And uh, like we like to make fun of Scott Galloway on the show. He like retweeted a study where like the the top line of the study was uh, millennials say they're going to invest the stimulus check on more than 50 percent of the uh, millennials say they're going to invest their stimulus check on Robin Hood. Yeah, which did not happen. Side note, I dug I teased Scott about this and he kind of acknowledged it. But uh, um. I dug into the study and it was a survey of millennial Robinhood customers. And it, was, <laughs> it was a survey of like 2000 of them, like 300 of which responded. Um, so I, I teased him. I followed up. I said uh, in a follow on study, um, a teenager said they don't care about money in a survey of Bill Gates, three kids, one of which responded. Yeah. He thought that was funny. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, that was super interesting. And then it, it is very interesting to see which categories are getting kind of sticky bumps versus got these tertiary bumps. And a lot of the categories that really got creamed last year, it does feel like they're making a partial comeback. Um, if you look at them by historical levels, they're still down. But things like shoes and apparel and um, things that were way down are are definitely starting to, to reemerge and, and uh, you know, the the leading products in each of those categories um, are starting to do pretty well. Yeah. Very cool. Another thing I've been watching really close um, uh, is the IPO market is white hot. If, if you haven't been tracking that. So, so let's see, Joanne's went out a couple weeks ago. So that was interesting. That one had a mediocre reception by wall street. I would say, I think it, it had to price down from its expectations and I watch uh, you and I, I think you've adopted this hobby of mine where you watch the roaches. Um, and that one was pretty under, under, you know, the, the quality bar is pretty high on these things. Now they have a pretty high production value. And that one was kind of a, you know, a guy calling in from a payphone uh, kind of, kind of a thing. So that one, that one did not land very well. Um, the one that was really interesting was ThreadUp. Um, so those guys went public this week, and last year they did 186 million, growing 14, 15 percent. So you know, pretty good, but you know, not a barn burner by any means. And then their IPO has been on fire. So um, they have a three billion dollar market cap. So if we look at last year's kind of revenue, um, cause we don't know what this year's will be and they don't, they don't, when you're going public, you don't put out a uh, projection until you have your first public quarter. Um, so, you know, let's say, let's say they grow 20% this year to, to be aggressive, um, which may be hard if that was an acceleration year due to COVID. But anyway, um, Let's say they grow 20%. So let's see, that would be 636. So call it 220 uh, this year just to kind of put a number out. Let's say 250 just to be super generous. They have a $3 billion market cap. So that's, you know, you know, way more than like 15 times. Um, most e-commerce companies are, you know, in the three to one to five time. Um, so, you know, they have got a real outsized um, performance from their IPO. So it's going to be interesting to see 
you know, how that stock performs. It was just trading up another 50%, which I think got them that $3 billion market cap. That one feels a little frothy to me. Um, but we did have, uh, you know, the CEO on the show. It's a great company. And I think what they're doing is really interesting. Um, just interesting to see that you got such a, a, a strong, um, you know, I think, I think they're worth. So Joanne's has like two to 3 billion and they're worth, and Joanne's is worth like 500 million. Uh, so they're worth like six Joanne's, but they're like, you know, a fraction of the size. So it just shows you what the market, the market likes growth um, and more pure play e-commerce than the omni-channel stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fairness, their model is slightly different than a wholesale retailer. So their their cost of goods is probably a lot lower because they are. Um, oh, yeah, they sort have of, way better margins and stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so it's not perfectly apples to apples, but it's still awesome. I, I would assume, I haven't heard him say this out loud, but I would assume Anthony Marino, the, the CEO of ThreadUp, would would credit most of his IPO success to his appearance on episode 170 of the Jason and Scott show. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a seminal work. Uh, and really, really, uh, is if you look at the curve, it's where the elbow is in the curve when they're on the show. Yeah. I, uh, I will just echo another point you made. It is shocking. The variance in quality of those roadshow videos. Yeah. Like there, sometimes there's like, uh, a dude with a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> and a bad one. And other times there's like amazing production value and it's like, it's, there's drama and humor and entertainment. It's, it's, uh, I don't know how, how, uh, the quality of that correlates to their IPO success, but, but, uh, it's, it's very obvious, like who's investing in those things and who isn't. Yeah, and then some of them go so over the top, they're like a Silicon Valley skit where they're kind of like, you know, we're going to change the world with compression. Yeah, I saw uh, this was not one of those roadshows, but there was a like uh, an earnings call from Intel. And, you know, Intel has had kind of a bad run lately. And so, they, you know, the, the CEO is kind of owning a lot of their their uh, missteps and talking about their turnaround plan. And I was he's a super smart guy. He was really articulate. He had a lot of interesting um, points, but his gestures were like so aggressive and over the top for every single sentence he uttered. Like I couldn't even concentrate on his words. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. One of the favorite topics in the news these days is private labels. Um, and um, there's been some interesting news here and this is really under the microscope because Amazon is doing their private labels. Uh, the one that everyone knows is Amazon basics. And there's a lot of antitrust focus on this area. And it's funny you and I laugh because uh, you know, if you if you read the headlines, it makes it seem like Amazon invented this whole idea, but it's been around. I think I saw Benedict Evans say it's been around since like the 1800s or something. Like there's, he found some retailer in London that it's been doing this for you know since like 1725 or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, some interesting news there. Uh, before we jump into that, though, maybe remind people you have a really kind of nice, nuanced way of talking about this. Maybe walk people through that before we jump in. Yeah, so there's a lot of um, phrases in in this space. Um, the most common one is called private labels, um, and uh, what what's happening a lot right now is not what I would call private label. There definitely is some private labeling, but but the the bulk of the interesting stuff right now is what I'm calling owned brands. And there's no standard definitions here, but my distinction between private label and owned brands is how those products are marketed and positioned. So 
Private label products tend to be knockoffs of popular national products. And the, uh, so the value prop is exactly the same as the national brand. And very often, it literally says that on the box. Compare this Wellbuprofen to Advil, right? Um, and 100% of the marketing for that Wellbuprofen is that it's on the shelf next to Advil, right? Like there's no, Walgreens isn't running ads for Wellbuprofen. They're not doing billboards or TV commercials or, you know, there's no uh, uh, Wellbuprofen Twitter account or, or anything like that. The the it's a private label product that's sitting on the shelf next to Advil. A lot of the products that successful retailers are launching right now and um, that I'm particularly interested in and are, you know, they tend to be like one of the three big strategies that almost every retailer has to compete with Amazon is to sell stuff that Amazon doesn't have and to invent these new owned brands. To me, the big distinction in the owned brands is they usually are not the same formulation as a national brand. They're, they usually are a unique product that has some differentiated feature, um, very often because the retailer used their customer data to identify a gap in the marketplace. So they might have used their, their uh, no-results-found searches on Target or um, you know non-converting glances on product tiles and all these different things to kind of find a gap make a product where one didn't exist. And then most of the retailers that are building these successful own brands are marketing the heck out of them. So the the extreme example that I always like to use is, is you know, the, the as I click mute before saying this, um, the Amazon Alexa is not a private label Sony Bluetooth speaker, right? It's a unique product that Amazon invented that has features that no product prior had in the market, and by the way, Amazon's hired Anthony Hopkins, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, uh, um, Harrison Ford, uh, and uh, uh, others to advertise this product on the Super Bowl. So that's kind of what owned brands are. And uh, there was a lot of owned brands uh, progress in the news this week. Yeah. What um – so roll us through there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the two, so I, I'll start with Target because I referenced them and, and Target really is to me um, the most successful retailer in this space. Like arguably by dollar volume, you could talk about something like Kirkland and Costco is being even more successful. Um, but uh, Target has really leaned into this. We're going to sell stuff that no one else has um, and we're going to market those products uh, for a long time. And, uh, and earlier this month, they announced that a product they launched less than a year ago called All in Motion, which is their athleisure brand that kind of competes with Lululemon, um, had surpassed a billion dollars in sales. And the, uh, that's, that's relevant for a bunch of reasons. It's, uh, they launched an athleisure brand right before the pandemic kicked into full gear, which is phenomenal timing. That was the only apparel people were wearing. Um, the it it had inclusive sizes, which historically Lululemon in particular uh, was not good at. Um, you know they were at attractive target price points, um, and they Target announced that this all in motion billion dollar brand was Target's tenth owned brand to surpass a billion dollars of sales in one year. And if you look at the list of all the digitally native vertical brands that have surpassed a billion dollars in a year, the answer is none. And if you look at all the CPGs that have launched new billion dollar brands, 
um, in the last five years? The answer is none. Like only retailers are launching new products that sell a billion dollars a year. And Target uniquely has launched 10 of them. So uh, that's phenomenal success. Almost every retailer I work with is like looking jealously at Target and trying to figure out their version of that model. Um, to double down on that, Target launched a new brand in the craft space. You've touched on this a couple times, but crafts uh, was one of the the retail categories that bo- uh, blossomed in the pandemic. And so they launched uh, Moto Llama, which is like uh, 400 SKUs of arts and crafts items uh, to compete with Michael's and Joann's. Um, I just like any product with llama in the name, by the way. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, is, is going to be interesting to follow. Uh, the more relevant to me, uh, they launched an indulgent dessert brand called Favorite Day. Um, mm. And so I like to eat the, the Favorite Day snacks on days that end in a Y. Um, but you, you can make your own rules. Um, so that's another uh, food brand. Targets had a lot of a uh, very we good call that podcast research. By the exactly, way. Yep. exactly. I bet. Listeners appreciate. It. Yeah, there's 700 SKUs to try, so uh, a lot of good stuff there. Um, and then a close cousin of the owned brands are exclusive um, brand partnerships. Um, and so Target has has been famous for these as well. And they launched a new one uh, this month with Levi's. So they have. Uh, unique denim. And again, like Target leaned into these inclusive sizes, which are doing really well, despite the fact that a lot of the specialty retailers haven't done well with with uh, inclusive sizing and kind of uh, Levi's branded products with with cool, unique denim designs at a surprising Target price point. So so two new owned brands, an exclusive partnership um, on top of the 10 brands that have already sold a billion dollars in the last few years. Um, and a lot of those brands were, were the, um, the product of the former chief merchant at target, who is this guy, Mark Triton. And Mark is not at target anymore because he was hired as the CEO at bed, bath and beyond to sort of try to turn around bed, bath and beyond. Um, and so, uh, and, uh, shockingly and famously, Bed Bath & Beyond was horrible at owned brands and private label. And in fact, like less than 10% of their sales are are um, uh, owned brand or private label product. Uh, so they bring in Mark Triton uh, and uh, they announced this quarter that they've launched their first exclusive products at Bed Bath & Beyond. So they launched a new bed and bath line called Nestwell. They have a second um, spa bath line called Haven. Um, and they're they're getting ready to launch their like entry price point items across all of their categories that'll be called simply essentials. Um, so those of us in the industry are really curious to see if Mark can um, kind of recreate the same magic that he had at Target at Bed Bath and Beyond. Those are his first three brands. And then I also noticed this week that he he was able to kind of um, uh, cherry pick a couple senior execs from Wayfair and Walmart. And the Wayfair exec uh, is uh, Jill Pavlich, who uh, was responsible for all the exclusive brands at Wayfair. So um, they're they're building quite a high powered um, own brand team at Bed Bath & Beyond. So that's going to be really interesting to follow. Now, did they have a long history of of owned brands or these are brand new to them? No, these are almost all brand new. There are very few owned brands at, at Bed Bath and Beyond. And I would argue that like where they were, it doesn't even count. Like furniture is kind of a weird category where they're just 
there are very few brands. The majority of furniture retailers um, are reselling these kind of pseudo private label furniture products. And so the, the most of the, the private label sales at Bed Bath and Beyond were in these furniture categories where they were basically just doing what everyone else was doing. Um, so they really hadn't made a good effort in like trying to launch their own brands and the old leadership team had kind of announced a couple initiatives, but none of them ever finished. So, um, you know, we all assumed when they brought in Mark Triton that that, that was going to become a much more um, serious effort at Bed Bath and Beyond, and and now we're seeing the first indication that that's exactly what's happening there. So it's it's uh, um, I'm not sure I would call it a win yet, and you know, there's a lot of headwinds facing Bed Bath and Beyond, but that's going to be interesting to follow. And uh, I certainly think they they have some people there that you wouldn't necessarily bet against. So it's gonna I I hope they're successful. Yeah, if I had a good Yoda voice, I would say begun the private label wars have. Yeah, I mean, uh, the bigger picture, and we could do a whole show on this, is so that's a top three strategy for every retailer is they're trying to become a brand. And spoiler alert, guess what every brand is doing in response to that? They're all trying to learn how to become a retailer and meet their own customers and sell direct and collect their own data. So um, I, I call it the epic battle between brands and retailers as they all try to gain each other's skills. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Yep, yep. Um, but that's probably going to be a good place to leave it for today. We have uh, stayed within our allotted time, um, which I, I want to take the win. Um, so if this was valuable to you, I hope you'll jump on iTunes and finally give us that five-star review. If you have any questions or comments about any of the things we've discussed, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or Facebook page, or I'll put uh, Scott's personal cell phone in the show notes. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 